And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. This is God's word. You may be seated. That was not Justin's error. That was mine. I love you, Justin. I'm covenanted with you, so I will take that, okay? Um, good morning. Great time of worship with you this morning. Um, gosh, man, we serve an amazing God, don't we? Let's open our service uh, with prayer. Father, God, we... We are so grateful for the salvation that's been gifted to us through your son, Jesus. We're so thankful, God, that we have your word that tells us of your heart, that reveals you to us. And as we go through this book, the book of Exodus, God, how we're seeing, God, so many wonderful attributes of you. God, your sovereignty your justice, your mercy, your goodness, God, your holiness. We ask, God, that as we read and consider your word together as a church, that you would please, God, again, transform us more and more into the image of Jesus. Not only, God, that we can continue to glorify you in our personal relationship with you, God, but we can walk outside these church doors and represent you well. That people would see through our actions, through our speech, through what's important to us, our priorities, how wonderful you are. So Father, we love you. Bless this time. We pray that your spirit would teach us now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. The Westminster Shorter Catechism answers the question, what is God, in this way. God is spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. It's a mouthful. Let me say it again. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, in his wisdom, in his power, in his holiness, in his justice, his goodness, and truth. This morning, we'll be considering three of these attributes highlighted in today's text. God's sovereignty, God's justice, and God's mercy. But before we get started, let me say this. I have a couple of disclaimers. Um, I'm choosing to highlight these three this morning because I believe they are highlighted in our text, which is going to be Exodus chapter 5 through chapter 10. Huge chunk. Now, that does not mean that the other attributes of God are not here. They are absolutely here. His wisdom, his holiness, and truth are present throughout all of Scripture. And we even think about God, read about God, they are all there. So God is, has been, always will be 100% wise, powerful, holy, just, good, and truth. 
He does not flip-flop or favor one attribute over another. He is consistent and constantly faithful to who he is. So when I cherry-pick attributes like this, I want you guys to understand um, I'm not trying to separate them from the others. I'm not trying to take away and emphasize one because throughout this whole story, we're going to see all of God's attributes displayed. But given the outline, a couple seem to be more highlighted, and those are the ones that I want to hone in on this morning. Now, I've been tasked to cover chapters 5 through 10, which is the majority of the plague narrative. And um, like I said before, it's, it's a big chunk of Bible. It's a lot, and I'm excited to go through it. But because it's a big chunk, we're going to be kind of going through a little bit differently. So I said we're doing the, the majority of the plague narrative minus the 10th plague and minus Passover because Pastor Daniel called those, and so he'll be teaching on those next week, which will be a sweet time of fellowship. Like Justin said, we'll be, partake, we'll be partaking and celebrating communion. We'll also be welcoming new members into our church, so please come and celebrate that great Sunday with us. That's next Sunday. So before we get into this text, 5 through 10, I want to briefly look at chapters um, 3. I want to give a little bit of a, basically I want to back up a little bit. I feel like we need to get a running start before we jump off this ledge cliff that we're here. So if you're here with us this last few Sundays, you can recall Exodus 3 when Moses is called by God to be his prophet and to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. It's the famous Exodus statement. Now Moses did not share God's enthusiasm in having to march up to Pharaoh and command him to free all of his slave labor, um, but Moses did, does so. He tries to get out of it, of course, with a few excuses, ultimately ending with him just flat out asking, can I just not do it? Can it just not be me? His excuses are, first of all, they won't believe me. Then he says, I'm just not good at speaking, so maybe somebody else can do it. And then he just straight out says, please just don't make me go. Just have somebody else take my place. Now Moses eventually submits to God's call in his life. He gets his house in order and heads to Egypt to begin this confrontation as the mediator between God and Pharaoh. We read Moses' opening statement to Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. If you have your Bibles, turn there. Starting in verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Verse 2. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh's response here, it reeks of arrogance and annoyance. It's almost tangible. This is the first interaction that begets the almost rhythmic pattern seen in almost every following interaction where God commands Pharaoh to let his people go. We see these three things. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart, great acts of judgment on Egypt, and through these, we see God's answering Pharaoh's question here by showing the world who the Lord is. It's in this three-part rhythm we see our sermon outline. God's sovereignty, God's justice, and God's mercy. So let's start with God's sovereignty. Now, simply put, God's sovereignty... It means that God has ultimate authority overall. 
First Chronicles chapter 29, verses 11 through 12 tell us this. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. God is great. God is powerful, glorious, victorious, majestic. All that is in heaven and earth are his. He is exalted above all. Both riches and honor come from him. In his hand are power and might and greatness and strength is what the Bible is telling us here. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes. In short, to believe in God's sovereignty is to believe that God rules over all, and he will always accomplish his purpose. Now, for us who believe in Jesus as our Lord and as our Savior, this should be an easy pill to swallow, right? What a radical truth that we can embrace with our minds, and it's something to definitely embrace with your mind, and hold dear to our hearts. We should welcome the truth that our Heavenly Father has ultimate authority over everything, right? It should free us up to endure and trust God in anything and everything that comes to us or that meets us in life. Because God has ultimate authority and control, and nothing will thwart his purposes, both in life and in death. Is that not what Paul was getting at when he penned Romans 8, 28, when he said, and we know, we love to quote this verse, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. There is confidence here, for we know all things work together for good those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And if all things work together for good, then God is the one who has authority over all things. What encouragement for us today. The encouragement comes in a lot of ways. But here's two ways, two seasons of life. Whether you're in an amazing season of blessing today, work's going good, family is healthy, food on the table, roof over your head, freshly engaged, New grandkids, praise God, he is sovereign, right? Or if you're in a season of trial, which I know a lot of our church is. Financial crisis, uncertainty, persecution, marital problems, health failing, health failing in in one of your family members, extended family, friends, estranged from your children. Christian, take heart. Our God is good, and our God is sovereign. We can trust him in every season of life. He alone has the authority and control of his creation, and nothing will derail his plan for ultimate good and supreme glory. Now, here in the book of Exodus, we are in one of the most popular stories that sparked the conversation concerning the power and the sovereignty of God in all creation— especially those created in God's image, man. We have it all here. This story is like all-encompassing. 
God's sovereignty over the elements, water, wind, darkness, light. God's sovereignty over sickness and death. God's sovereignty over frogs, gnats, flies, locusts. When I have flies in my house, I look at that situation differently now. Outside of a few famous Bible texts, there's no greater all-encompassing example of God's sovereignty than right here this morning in Exodus in the plague narrative. And this idea, this, this attribute or this highlight of God's sovereignty throughout the Bible, especially in Exodus, it begins on page one. Just like it begins in the Bible on page one. Moses and Hebrew, the Hebrew people, it's not easy to see to, or to trace God's sovereignty through their lives up to this point. But in today's text, our attention is directed more towards the antagonist of our story, that being Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. That being this nation that is holding Israel in bondage. Now, we don't only see this at the end of each plague description, but we see it before God sets any of the plagues into motion. Exodus chapter 7, verses 3 through 4. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. So here is the question that we can consider this morning. Has God sovereignly chosen Pharaoh and the Egyptians to display his glory and power through judgment? Has God sovereignly chosen Pharaoh and the Egyptians to display his glory and power through their judgment? Let's consider this in Exodus chapter 9 to begin answering it. Verses 15 through 16. For by now, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence. And you would have been cut off from the earth. Verse 16. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. In other words, God is saying, I could end this and I can end you right now. I could free my people with the snap of my fingers. But this is bigger than just saving people here and now. This is about my glory and my name being proclaimed in all the earth, not just here in Egypt. This is not only to deliver a few now, but it's also to convince many throughout the ages that I alone am the true God. Was it not Rahab and Joshua too, you guys in the story? The walls of Jericho, Joshua's going to march in and conquer. But before that, he sends spies in. We're introduced to Rahab, a prostitute, who gets wind of who this God is by hearing about what he's done in Egypt. In Joshua 2.11, comes, this is coming out of her mouth. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is a God in, in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She had heard of who God is through the judgment of Egypt. God's name was made known through this. God is sovereign. And he sovereignly chose to raise Pharaoh and Egypt up to display his glory to the world. Let us trust God in this matter and be grateful that he made his name known to us, amen? 
Psalm 135, verses 6 through 14. Just listen in. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain, and brings forth the wind from his storehouse. He it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sion, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people of Israel. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all the ages. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. Let us be comforted in God's sovereignty this morning. The second attribute I want to look at is the justice of God. The justice of God. Proverbs 11.21 tells us, Be assured, an evil person will not go unpunished, but the offspring of the righteous will be delivered. Now, when it comes to the wicked, to have justice, there must be judgment, right? And God explicitly tells Moses in Exodus chapter 7 that he will lay, he says, I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Now, these great acts of judgment are known to us as the ten plagues, and I want to briefly review that since we are teaching on this text. The first plague is water turned to blood. Now, there's a lot to be said about these plagues. I mean, you can dig in and just pull out tons of information and insights on how these plagues worked, what they were countering, what they were speaking to, how the Egyptians would interpret it as far as the gods they worshipped, where their source of life was, as far as the Nile was concerned. But I just want to give you a flyover of what they were. Because this morning, we're not trying to go that deep into what the plagues actually meant. The first plague is water turned to blood. Now Moses stands at the bank of the Nile and strikes the water with his staff. The Nile turns to blood, which is just a super trippy image to have in your head. That this whole beautiful stream of life, river of life, is literally turned to blood. And not just the river, but the pots and all the vessels that held water from the Nile also turned to blood. Pharaoh has his magicians try to repeat this, try to mimic this, and in a lot of ways, just trying to discredit what God had done, and they were able to do it, which is super strange. I don't know how they did it. I don't know if it was a sleight of hand or if it was some weird, dark magic. I'm not really sure what happened. But it's funny to think that Pharaoh has his magicians repeat these things rather than try to remove these things. I don't know. That's what Pharaoh was going for. But we read that Pharaoh wasn't even moved by this. He literally just went in, back into his house, wasn't even affected by it. Plague two is frogs. Aaron stretches out his hand with a staff over the rivers, the canals, the ponds. Frogs come out everywhere. Did anybody like have a frog phobia in here? Okay, good. I think my wife might. I'm not sure. For sure lizards. I'm spiders, so I'm no better. I hate spiders. Um, what? Thank you. Thank you, Rob. Don't take my man card. Um, so frogs come out everywhere. They cover the land. We read that it's just absolutely ridiculous. His magicians once again mimic it. I, again, I don't understand why they're doing this, but I guess just to discredit God as Lord. 
Pharaoh pleads to have these frogs removed, so he asks them to get relocated to the Nile, and Moses answers his request, but we read, Pharaoh's heart is hard. Pharaoh does not follow up with what he say he will do. His heart is hard. Plague number three is gnats. Aaron stretches out his staff and strikes the dust, and it becomes gnats, and it fills the entire land with these little pesky gnats. And to this point, the Pharaoh's magicians try to replicate it, but they're unable to. And they even point out, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart is hard. Number four is flies. God sends great swarms of flies. Flies somewhat directed to Pharaoh's house, we read. They go to Pharaoh's house first, and they cover the land of Egypt. These flies don't come near the Hebrew people, which again is miraculous. The land of Egypt was ruined because of these flies. And Pharaoh's heart was still hard. Five is Egyptian livestock die. Severe plague comes and kills all of the Egyptian livestock we read. The plague does not even touch the Hebrew livestock, again miraculous. Yet, Pharaoh's heart is hard. Plague six, boils. Moses and Aaron take a handful of soot and throw it into the air. It becomes a great cloud. And upon contact with people, these boils just start to fester. And all over man, all over beast, and Pharaoh's heart is still hard. Number seven, hail and fire. Moses stretches out his hand towards heaven, and hail and fire plague the land. Now Moses, God, through Moses, gives the people a warning. It says, those who fear the Lord, take cover. Bring your beasts in the barn. Don't go outside that day. Yet there were those who did not fear the Lord, and they went out, and they were struck dead from this crazy hail. But there were those who feared the Lord, and he did that. It did not go outside. It's important to note. Crops, beasts, man, all killed by the hail. But Pharaoh, we read, that falsely repents. It's like this way of trying to get some safety by saying he repents. But we read, we read in the text that Pharaoh's heart again was hard. Number eight, locusts. Moses stretches out his staff over the land and stirs up and the east wind that brings all of these locusts. So many that we read that it darkened the land and covered all the ground. And these locusts came in and devoured all the crop that, was, that wasn't devoured by the hail and fire. Pharaoh again appears to repent for temporarily, but we read that Pharaoh's heart is hard. Number nine, darkness. Moses stretches out his hand towards the heaven and a darkness comes over the land so dark that people weren't even able to get out of their house. It says they actually just stayed put. They couldn't see each other in front of each other. For three days it was dark. All of Israel, this is a beautiful picture, all of Israel was not dark. It was light where they lived. And what a great picture of God's people here on earth. God's favor, God's light to the world. Now it seems that in Plague 9 that Pharaoh begins to cave, but then we read that Pharaoh's heart is yet hard again. And then we have the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn. The ultimate plague and judgment coming, a terrible plague, but a righteous rule by God nonetheless. And we will read more about that and study that next week. So, was that too quick? We get those? Okay. We've all heard this story plenty of times. But it's a gnarly story, right? This is ridiculous. I mean, it's so easy. I mean, for me personally, growing up to some degree in a church, hearing these stories growing up in Sunday school, it's like you almost get callous to it, where you're just like, okay, flies, you know, frogs, hail, don't go outside, you know? But think about the, 
just a normal citizen of Egypt that doesn't have this information, that's cruising around just embracing for whatever plague is coming around the corner. How terrifying. How scary. It just, it's amazing. It, it conjures up nightmarish images in my own mind. I cannot imagine being there. Here's a good question to ask ourselves this morning in light of these plagues. Did God really have to be this hard on the Egyptian people? I mean, you read the story, it's just, it just sounds so, it just sounds terrible. For me, especially the boils, I don't know about you guys, but the boils just, no, not the boils, but it just sounds horrible. Did God really have to be this hard on the Egyptian people? And the answer is, is a resounding, a resounding yes. Yes, he had to be this way. And there are more than one reason for that. First, it shows us that God is right, a righteous judge, which is consistent with his character, right? A wise, powerful, holy, just, good, and true God must pronounce judgment on wickedness, or else he's not the one true God. Isaiah 61, 8, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5-8, through 8, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus." If God lets wickedness go unpunished, how could he be just? If he lets evildoer, an evildoer continue in his way, how can he be all just? If he turns a blind eye to injustice, then how can he be the one true God? The God that we read about here in scripture. God cannot deny who he is. Holy and uniquely good and just. Therefore, the wicked will not stand on the day of judgment. Therefore, we can read in Psalm 5, God does not delight in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with him. The boastful shall not stand before his eyes. He hates all evildoers. He destroys those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. Because God is just, he must judge sin. Secondly, it shows us the ultimate end of for those who do not know God as Lord. Now, the scriptures teach us in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Death is the wage for those who do not know God as Lord. And the reason for that is because each and every one of us has broken God's perfect law. We've all sinned. Romans 3.23 confirms that for all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, and because we are hopelessly lost in our sin, God had to do something so miraculous to save us. He did something extraordinary. He revealed himself. He made himself known, which is the third reason for God's severe judgment and also our third and final section. This great judgment shows us God's mercy which sounds like an oxymoron, but it's true. The mercy of God, 
it can be hard to look at a story like this and think, God is so merciful. It's like, yeah, tell that to the Egyptians. But if you thoughtfully consider these acts of judgment, you will see that God does, in fact, show mercy to the Egyptians. You can see this in the way God was patient in his severity of the plagues. I mean, there is definitely a gradual increase leading up to the 10th, which is just gnarly. You can see that God gave Egypt many chances to let God's people go, yet they did not fear the Lord. But the greatest way God was merciful through all of this was by making himself known. Remember, it was Pharaoh who mockingly asked in chapter 5, Who is the Lord? That I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. I don't think this is an illegitimate question. I think it's a great question for anyone who does not know who God is. Who is he? Because God desires us to know him. In our story, God expressed this objective of making himself known in these acts of judgment seven times in six chapters. Seven times he says, I am doing this to make myself known so that you may know who I am, so that the world may know who I am. God says, I am doing these things so that the Egyptians know that I am the Lord, chapter 7, verse 5. These signs and wonders are to show you who I am. You will know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. You will know there is none like me. And although God revealed his power over and over, we read, Egypt did not acknowledge him as God. So did God fail? No, of course not. We just went over the sovereignty of God. Nothing can thwart his purpose. Nothing can derail what he is doing. The almighty and sovereign God has made known to the ancient world as word of his judgment went across all of the nations throughout history. Deliverance of his people spread. Judgment of Egypt spread. People were asking, who is this God? This all-powerful God that does these great things. Like the psalm we read and prayed through during our time of giving. The mighty works of God have been proclaimed throughout the ages through this account, as well as many more accounts of the Old and New Testament. And the beautiful thing is, is that it wasn't just so Pharaoh and Egypt could know who God was. It was for the world to also see who God was and is. It was for you and I to see who God is. This wasn't restricted to the days, these ancient days. This, was, this is bringing up today, now in our church. We are looking at this text and understanding who God is. I truly believe that God's revelation of himself to us is the greatest expression of God's mercy. And I've thought long and hard about that statement because it's a big statement. Let me explain. Every human being alive today is experiencing God's mercy. If you are alive today, whether you believe in God or not, you are experiencing God's mercy. But that is all temporary for those who do not know him as God, as Lord. God revealed himself to the world in order that we might know him. He did this in the days of old through prophets and kings. He does it now through the written word that we hold in our hands this morning, that we have on our screens behind us. But that did not come until his ultimate manifestation of himself to us came, and that was through his son, Jesus Christ. God made himself known. 
You see, God being holy and just knew that just like Egypt, we had to be judged for our sin and our wickedness. It's hard to find yourself in the story, right? Or is it easy? I think it's easy. Before Christ, we are Egypt. We are Pharaoh. We are dead and doomed for judgment. And after Christ, we've been pulled aside as his people. We're the ones that the world's in darkness and God is keeping light around us. God is delivering us. Like Pharaoh, we try to be our own gods, though. We try to do whatever we think is right. We, like Pharaoh, have hard hearts in complete rebellion to our creator. So God made himself known to us through his son, Jesus, who perfectly submitted himself to the will of his father. Jesus, the only righteous and sinless man, come to save us from our sin. You see, God is just. And because he is, we are to be judged for our wrongdoing. But Jesus stood in our place and took our judgment in order that we might have his reward. By grace through faith, God saves. He makes hard hearts new and sensitive again. We read in Ezekiel chapter 36, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What was Pharaoh's question? Who is God? And why should I obey him? This is who God is. And as believers in Jesus, the reason why we can obey him is because the spirit of God is in us. That is the hope we have in Christ, church. That is the mercy we have been shown by God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, there is so much in this text to glean from. So many footnotes, so many references, so many connections to the grand narrative of your word. I'm so thankful, God, that you've revealed yourself to us and you continue to do so. That we literally have your words on page that we can open up and just spend time with you. Father, help us not to neglect the fact that you're desiring to continually reveal yourself to us through your word every single day. Oh, Father, how easy it is to hold our appointments with men business meetings, coffee meetings, whatever it might be. But how hard is God to hold our appointments with you? How forgetful we can be. How flippant we can be, God, when we say we'll spend time with you and we don't. I pray, God, that we would recognize by the power of your spirit that you desire to reveal yourself to us over and over and over again. To remind us how much we are loved as your children. I also recognize, God, that you desire to reveal yourself to this community and to continue to reveal yourself to this world through your word, through the obedience of your saints, for us going out and being lights unto darkness, to showing and sharing the good news of what Christ has done for us. Oh, Lord, give us that desire and that passion to reach people 
in our workplace. We all know somebody who needs Jesus. God, help us to just really just press in with love and truth. We ask, God, that you would save our unbelieving friends. Father, I also want to lift up several people in our church who are going through health issues, Lord. For Paul and Andy, for their dad, and I see you, God, I lift him up to you. I ask God first and foremost that he would know you as his God. He would know your son as his Lord and Savior. I pray for Kazuko, Lord, as she heals from being sick. I pray for Eddie's sister, Lord, in a car accident, in the hospital in L.A. And I pray for all those, Lord, who are sick and hurting. We ask, God, that even now that you would manifest yourself in the sweetest of ways, for the comfort of a saint, for the sharing of a verse to those who are sick and hurting. We love you, Father. We pray you're glorified through our lives, through your church. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.